Well, this morning we turn to Psalm 94, making our way through book four of the Psalms. And if you're paying attention, there's much to that, that may, I shouldn't say to, I should say may, there's much that may offend you in what we've sung or what we've read. Rarely do we sing something referring to people as stupid. <laughs> but we, in our, in our Psalter's rendition of Psalm 94, it refers to these stupid people. And that is not a, uh, that, you know, we can, that, that's not a, it's not a bad translation uh, um, in, in the um, New King James uh, in verse 8, understand you senseless among the people and you fools, when will you be wise? Um, so our Psalter's kind of old school and just calls them stupid. <laughs> um, but when we see who they are, they are stupid. And stupid is a stupid is. So it's it's uh, we got to call a call a spade a spade here, I guess. But the Bible does it, and also it calls God a God of vengeance. Again, the New King James tones it down a little bit. I don't know if you have other translations, but uh, where it will say, "Oh God of vengeance." Oh, God of vengeance. And the New King James says, Oh, Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs. That's a little bit a little bit softer than calling God a God of vengeance. But that's what this psalm does. So we've got a challenging psalm before us here. So far, uh, psalms, the psalms that we've looked at in book four have been encouraging to us in times of crises, in the midst of stormy seas, in the midst of external threats. And certainly this psalm continues that. It just takes a different angle on it. It does it by pointing us to the God who doesn't just shelter us under his wings, as he does in Psalm 91, but here a God who will avenge. This is a challenging thing for us as Christians to think about God this way. Certainly, this is not the major chord that gets that gets played in most of our understanding, our theology, our sermonizing, our church piety and Christian piety. Right when we think of God, the I don't know where God of vengeance would come in your list of sort of names for God, but I'm going to guess not very high, and especially within our culture which sees as the chief virtue, though it's not one of the classical virtues, uh, the chief virtue in our culture is that of tolerance. Um, and I'm not making commentary on that per se, but just saying in a culture that values tolerance or claims, let's put it that way, claims to value tolerance above everything else, to refer to God as a God of vengeance, it just is grating, doesn't, doesn't sit right. So that kind of gets pressed down in the list of, we, we like 1 John 4, 8, God is love. And that is true. I don't minimize that. Um, God of vengeance, not so much. We don't know quite what to do with that. And then we come to Psalm 94 and the psalmist is singing of it and celebrating it and calling people stupid who refuse to recognize it and who persist in their wickedness, and who persist in their evil ways, of living a life out of the context of divine vengeance. 
who fail to recognize that there is a day of judgment coming. Something that I think probably our grandparents, if not our parents, but at least our grandparents and great-grandparents kind of took for granted. There was something about our culture that just got that. Believer or unbeliever had a sense that there was a day of reckoning, a day of judgment, something that was beginning to be challenged in this country anyway at the turn of last century. So from the uh, 19th to the 20th century, this idea of divine judgment was being challenged in this country. It had already come, it had started to bubble up in Europe, in Germany of all places, with German theologians that were challenging this idea of a holy God of vengeance and instead chose to speak of him as father, which of course is also biblical, but in the language of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. And, and God is God is the is the God who's who's you know going to play nice with us all and, and really welcomes us all in. And there's no sense of eternal judgment and hell fell way out of vogue. And and it took time for that to work its way into this country, but it most certainly did at the turn of the century started to infect our seminaries in the 1920s and 30s and through that then out to, you know, to our culture. And now we're kind of living, you know, in the, in the aftermath of all that. You know, now we're in sort of a, in some sense, a post-Christianized uh, culture. Many, many, that, that we cannot assume now, right? Even much of last century, we could have assumed that people had some sense of eternal judgment, of divine judgment, and, and uh, perhaps even divine vengeance, but no more. And that has infiltrated the church. So again, Christians feel even uncomfortable thinking about this or talking about it. So that's why it's beautiful to preach through passages of Scripture in successive order in sort of an expository way because you preach on things that maybe if you were just choosing text, you might skip around and avoid. But when you're preaching through a book, it pushes your nose into it and says, hey, deal with this passage. You got can't skip over this one. Everyone want to wonder why you skipped over this one. <laughs> so Psalm 94, but I, w I wouldn't want to skip over this. I think this is a, I think this is a very important note for us to, have to deal with today. So the psalm begins by referring to God as a God of vengeance. And I'm going to use that language. Oh, God of vengeance. God of vengeance shine forth. Now, one thing that, that all the psalms that we've been considering thus far in, in, uh, in book four have been the psalmist in crisis. And of course, many of the psalms are this, right? And that's why the Psalms are so wonderful and why so many people love them is because the Psalms, um, the Psalms allow us to identify with the writers of scripture. They, they find the writers of the Psalms find themselves in a world like we find ourselves filled with turmoil, filled with crisis, filled with betrayal, filled with evil, filled with murder and lying. The Psalms are honest. They open their heart and they cry out. And so in, in, in Psalm 91, you know, you, the, the, the psalmist is, is troubled. 
by plague and pestilence and arrows flying by day and pestilence stalking at night and, and finds comfort in the fact that the Lord calls us under his wings. And, and in, in, in Psalm 93, the psalmist admits that the billows and the waves are crashing down on him and looks to the Lord, the Almighty, the Holy One, who reigns as his comfort in the midst of this crashing sea. And we thought about that two weeks ago and said, man, we can, can't we identify with that? Don't you feel like that? Don't you feel like every day you get up and try to get a good breath of fresh air and the minute you first see the news or hear the news or look at whatever you look at to receive the news, it's like another breaker just crashes down on you and you come up for air and another one's twisting you around in the sea. And, and so we can read Psalm 93 and say, yeah, I get that world. That makes sense to me. The psalmist here again finds himself in crisis. Right? There are evildoers who, who have found themselves in positions of power where they can not only just do evil, that's enough that we have to live among evildoers, but these evildoers have, have found themselves in positions of power where they can establish it by law now. And they can force it down on all of us and their murderous, hateful policies become law that we all have to suffer under. And then puts us in very difficult decisions about how we manage and where we obey and where we don't obey. And this is the crisis of living in a cursed age like the psalmist and like ours. And so the psalmist, who apparently, though he doesn't say it directly, but because the, the cry here in the very beginning is God of vengeance shine forth, is acknowledging the fact that he lives in darkness this, this cursed age in which we live, and when I say age now, I, I keep referring to this, so let me give clarity. I'm not, I'm not just referring to, you know, 2021, though it, it has its, its darkness. But this age, really, that extends back to Adam. We're under curse. And it is darkness. And he is asking the Lord who is light, right? We studied 1 John. God is light and in him there is no darkness. And the psalmist is asking the God of light to shine forth. And what does the brilliance of the light look like in this psalm? What light is he looking for? Vengeance. Vengeance. Now, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with vengeance being light? Because we tend to think that that's not virtuous. And one reason we think it's not virtuous is because we're commanded not to do it. Right? In Romans 12, do not seek vengeance. Do not avenge. Do not return evil for evil, says Paul. In Romans 12. And so it's like when we hear God being called jealous, we're, we're like, how do we make sense of that? Because I thought jealousy wasn't good. We're not to be jealous. And yet God is a jealous God who visits the iniquity upon the children to the third and fourth generation. So we, we, have to, we have to process these things because things that we tend to think are bad because we're told not to do them, turns out in the scripture are not bad in and of themselves. It's the one doing it that makes it bad. And what stands behind it? Why are we not allowed to seek revenge? Why, why does the scripture tell you not to get vengeance? Well, again, just examine your own heart, and I think you might begin to have a clue. 
because we are not worthy of it, right? I am not trustworthy. I'm, I'm, I'm limited. I'm impure. When, when I try to reconcile things, when I try to even the scales, there's evil being done or offense to me, or even when I try and step in and, and avenge someone else, I bring all kinds of impurity to the, to the occasion, right? I'm off balance. I bring my own evil into the thing. That's why the Lord says, do not return evil for evil. When, when I try to step in, I'm bringing my evil into this moment of injustice, thinking that through my sinfulness and my weakness, I can somehow rectify this. I see what's going on here. I, with my own puny, limited vision, from my little tiny perspective, I can see what the moment calls for here. I perceive the injustice that has happened, and I know how to set it right. There's arrogance there, right? There, there's, there's, there's a, there's a, uh, you know, there's a sense of you being God, but you are not God. You, you are so limited in your vision, so limited in your perspective, so limited as to what the offense actually was and what weight it carries and what must be done in light of it and how it can possibly be rectified. These are all things way, way, way above your pay scale, right? You do not have the ability, the perspective, or the purity to see such things or to execute them properly. Only God is able to do that because God is pure. He is light and in him there is no darkness. There is not one nook or cranny in any situation or in any offense that is hidden from him. He sees perfectly and clearly what the offense is and what must be done to rectify it. He is omniscient, and he has the ability, being that he's omnipotent, to execute it and to deal with it. And because he is just and pure and all good, he does not extend justice beyond what is due. And because he is love and he is full of grace, he is worthy to handle it. It's interesting that in that Revelation passage that we read, Revelation 6, right at the end of that, it's such a beautiful irony because at the end of chapter 6, now remember, remember, all kinds of evil has been running around in that. If you go back and read, you know, because sometimes you're hearing it first and you're hearing it out of the context that I'm going to use it, but go back and read Revelation 6, right? We know that because it's the four horsemen. It's a very famous passage. And the, force, the four horsemen are unleashed as the seals are opened. Again, this brings us, this brings us back to the sovereignty of our God who, who, who leads us into the stormy seas, right, and, and so forth. He got, Jesus opens, he unleashes the seals, and out of these seals come these four awful horsemen who are bringing calamity over the face of the earth. And just like the psalmist here, the martyrs in, in Revelation 6 cry out, how long? Right? That's the cry of humanity in the midst of this darkness. How long, O Lord? That's what he asks here. How, how long? In verse 2, 
or uh, verse three, excuse me. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? In, in Revelation six, the martyrs are crying out, Lord, how long, how long until you vindicate your name? Lord, when are you going to set things right? This is the cry of the people of God. How long, oh Lord, are you going to let it go on like this? How long are you going to let people defame your name? And the Lord says, for a little longer, you're going to have to wait. I'm not ready to do it yet. It's not the answer we want, but you're going to have to wait. But then, as it goes on, the Lord does unleash judgment. The sky rolls back like a scroll, and judgment begins to pour out, and the earth quakes, and the hailstones come, and the fire from heaven. And, and what do the kings and the nations and the powerful people do? They cry for the rocks to fall on them and to hide them from the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb. The Lamb, of all things. They're afraid of the wrath of a lamb. But the one who executes judgment, vengeance, is the lamb of God. The one who was slain for the sins of his people. He alone is worthy to wield vengeance. He's trustworthy. For he has given his own life for the sake of his people. Why do we squirm when we hear vengeance, when we hear about a God of vengeance? I think we squirm for a couple reasons. One, because we have, most of us, I don't, wanna, I don't know all of your stories so intimately, or certainly anybody who's listening, that I can say you haven't. But most of us in the Western world have not seen unadulterated evil we have been very sheltered. In fact, I, I want to listen to it. I saw the thing on Twitter and then I skipped over it and then Christina sent it to me and I, I will listen to it again. But Bill Maher uh, the other day on his show was commenting on all this griping and moaning about America and how evil America is and America is just this awful. But I mean, this is, this is what we're having to deal. I mean, you actually, I mean, we know it. It's happening in schools all over the place. I mean, I, it's amazing to me now as I have families coming to Chapel Field and sitting with me in interviews and I have to interview them about coming here. And then they feel like they need to share their stories with me about what their kids are going through in their local public schools. I mean, they just, these parents just can't handle it anymore. Just telling their children how awful America is. It just makes parents get sick of it. But Mara says, it's time for us to stop America. And what, what, not that this is the only thing, but one thing that snapped Mar out of this was looking at what's going on in Afghanistan. It's like, you know, look at that. We have been so sheltered from that. We have forgotten the amazing blessings that we have here. It's time to stop whining and, and yeah, put our hands to the plow and let's work to improve things and so forth, but stop whining. In the West, we have been very, very sheltered from that kind of unadulterated evil. And because we haven't seen it, we end up with sort of a Disney-fied version of evil that we know is not good, but it's, it's you know, does anybody really deserve vengeance? Does anybody deserve, could we actually sing Psalm 94 about any particular individual or groups of individuals? People don't seem that bad. 
when I think of this, I always go, and I've read before in this church the quote from Miroslav Volf. I brought the book as I was telling Mark. I thought I knew right where the quote was, and I didn't. So anyway, I have it on my phone. But I have the book in there. His book, uh, he's a professor at uh, Yale Divinity. And he wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace about, about how and when Christians ought to exclude, push away. Like where, where biblically are those places in which we must exclude? And where are the places where we must embrace? And how do we manage exclusion and embrace culturally, personally, so forth? But anyway, he, he's wrestling with this as a Croatian who had seen terrible evil himself. And I'll just give you, this is a quote you may have heard. What, what first turned me on to this was actually, I think uh, I had heard Keller uh, reference it and ended up buying the book and, and reading it. And I've read a couple of his and I really enjoy his thinking. But here's what he says in this book. My thesis, now he, he's, he's um, well, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence, so if we're going to be nonviolent toward each other, right, if I'm going to be embracing of you and of other people, my neighbor, how can I do it? Right? And again, we live in a society that just values tolerance. It's just like, well, do it. Do it because that's what you should do. We have no reasons why we should do it. Theologically, you should just do it. Okay, Wolf is saying, V-O-L-F, Wolf is saying, no, you you must embrace, but my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West, to the person who is inclined to dismiss it, that is, if we're actually going to be people who embrace one another and love our neighbor and do good to those who, who spitefully use us, it requires a belief in divine vengeance. But I understand this is going to be unpopular. To the person who is inclined to dismiss that idea, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone, which is where a paper that underlies this chapter was originally delivered. And among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, quote, a Christian attitude toward violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-judging love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And as one watches it die, that is the belief that, no, you have nonviolence, you, you, the way you have this accepting love is by a belief that God himself doesn't judge. And because he doesn't judge, you shouldn't judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, that belief will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one would do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. One of the reasons we squirm over the idea of divine vengeance is because we just haven't seen evil. We don't know what it means to cry out 
for divine justice. We prop up things. We have to work really hard to try to find real bad injustices, even in this country. But we haven't. We haven't lived in many parts of the world. Again, blood-soaked lands. And not that there weren't times, even in this nation, when it was there. But you and I have tasted very, very little of it. And so we squirm when we hear the idea of divine vengeance. And the second reason we squirm when we think about divine vengeance is because we identify with the evildoer. Like in some sense, we squirm over the idea because we want to save our own skin. We identify with the evildoer, and therefore the idea that there would ever be vengeance upon the proud, as this psalm says, immediately strikes us to the core. We're kind of like, well, gee whiz, I, I, I fall into that category. Like divine vengeance for those who have done wrong. I mean, I, gee whiz, I've hurt other people. And so we identify with the evildoer. You'll remember, I always use that illustration that R.C. did in our class where he stood one person in one corner of the room and another person in the other corner of the room and he said, okay, that person's Jesus, that person is Hitler. Now take who's the most righteous human being you can think of. Okay, fine, Billy Graham. Let's just come up with a name. Okay, place Billy Graham on the spectrum between Jesus and Hitler. And by the end of the conversation, we had Billy Graham sitting on Hitler's shoulders. Like in comparison to the righteousness of Christ, there's very little difference between Adolf Hitler and Billy Graham on that spectrum. On the spectrum of sinful humanity, sure, big difference between Billy Graham and Hitler. But on the spectrum of God's holiness, you can't, I can't see the difference almost. And because of that, we squirm when we hear divine vengeance because we know if Hitler, then me too. And we really wrestle with that. I think these are issues that cause the squirming. So how ought we to deal with divine vengeance? Well, the Psalms rejoice in it. The Psalms rejoice in it. Or perhaps listen to this from uh, from Isaiah, uh, Isaiah, from uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy 32. Um Be nice if I could find the verse I'm looking for. Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there anyone who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven and I say, and say, as I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. And I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. The call then in the scriptures is not to squirm, but to rejoice. To find it comforting to know that our God is a God who will not let evil prevail. He will not let injustice go undealt with. That ours is a just judge who will set all things to rights. If we don't rejoice, then it's worth pondering. Why don't I? 
What's in my way? Where's the bad theology that's keeping me from rejoicing in the fact that God, a holy God, a righteous God, a loving God, a gracious God will at the same time avenge? The saints cry out, when, O Lord, will you set it right? And he does not respond to them, I'm not going to. I'm not that kind of God. I'm going to let it stand. No, he says, you wait a little longer till the full number of the martyrs have come. And then we slide to the next seal being unleashed. And in the next seal being unleashed, after those martyrs have been given their white robes, the sky rolls back like a scroll and the judgment comes. And the people cry out for the rocks to cover them so that they might be spared from the coming judgment of the one who's on the throne and of the Lamb. In Romans chapter 12, when we're told not to return evil for evil, the rationale, to go to Miroslav Volf's book, the rationale is, don't return evil for evil, for I will avenge. I will repay, declares the Lord. That's why you don't have to do it. That's why you can deal with it. That's why you can remain in the darkness crying out to the Lord and finding consolation in him and not have to pick up the sword yourself and go do it. That's why you can turn the other cheek. That's why you can embrace your enemy. That's why you can do good to those who despitefully use you. Because yours is a God who will not let one bit, not one slight, be undealt with. And we fall into the trap of thinking, well, if I don't do it, it won't get done. Well, the scriptures call us to rejoice in the fact that whether it gets dealt with in this life or not, by God, all things will be made clear and open on that day of judgment and all will be reckoned with. Now, of course, the question for us is, well, okay, but what does that do? What does that do for me? Because certainly I have been the cause of evil toward others, but uh, or that I have been, I've had evil done to me, but certainly I have been the cause of evil to others. How do we deal with that? And of course, this brings us back to what we proclaimed in the assurance of pardon today, that our hope is in Christ. Right? E either, either the wrongs will be dealt with in us, or they will have been dealt with in Christ, but every wrong, even every wrong that I have committed, will be reckoned with. When Christ goes to the cross, what he is doing is standing in my place, standing in your place, and giving account, if you will, for every offense, every slight, every roll of the eyes, every bit of grumbling, every act of evil, my thoughts, motives, intentions, actions that I have committed against God and against you. Every one down to the slightest, he is giving account for and reaping the whirlwind for. And therefore, if not in Christ, then they will dealt, be dealt with in eternity. That is what the scriptures remind us. The day is coming, and on that day, it will all be dealt with, either having been dealt with in Christ or 
in us and upon us for all eternity. So I encourage you, I, I'll zip through the rest of the psalm, but, but I just want to encourage you to reckon with this notion of divine vengeance. And if you squirm, if you squirm, to reckon with why. And to challenge ourselves to take up the joy that the psalmist has. That in the midst of the darkness, the God of vengeance will shine forth. He's coming. Verses 1 through 7 is this statement. Well, we have the, the, the prayer in verses 1 through 3. Right, the prayer of those, even the martyrs, how long, O oh Lord, how long will the wicked triumph? How long do we have to see incompetence ruling throughout the world? How long do we have to see evil? How long do we have to hear about ISIS? How long do we have to hear about Al-Qaeda and Taliban and abortion and every other evil that there is? How long do we have to endure this? Come, Lord, shine forth. Don't you want, don't you want God to shine forth and put an end to global terrorism? Don't you want him to put an end to abortion? Don't you want him to put an end to child abuse? Do you want an end to these things? If so, then you can join with the psalmist and cry, How long, O Lord? And then in verses 4 through 7, he, he describes the problem. They utter speech. They speak insolent things. These workers of iniquity boast in themselves. These people get positions of power, and then they stand there with power so proudly. They break in pieces your people. We thought about that in Hebrews 11, what the people of God have had to endure. Hey, listen, if you'd seen your brothers and sisters sawn in two, if you had seen that, you would, you would, you would understand Psalm 94. We haven't really seen that. So we have, to, we have to imagine, which is terrible. Or we have to see, and we don't have the eyes to do it, but we have to see sin for what it is and rebellion against God for what it is. They slay the widow and the stranger. They murder the fatherless. We have seen that. They kill the unborn. They kill them arrogantly, and then they make us pay for it. They kill them proudly. They celebrate it. They celebrate it. Our former governor lit the Empire State Building up to celebrate the fact that you could abort a child as it's being born. I mean, again, if we, if we were living in biblical times, the madness that has taken over the globe, and it has taken over the globe, I'm sure there are some areas in which it, there's not madness, but madness has taken over the entire globe. If we were living in biblical times, we'd have some prophet show up and, and tell us. And he'd be like, this is what has finally befallen you when you've, you, you know, turned your back on the Lord your God. We scratch our heads and think it's just a matter of policy. We scratch our head and think it's a matter of getting the right person in power, or getting the right justices on the Supreme Court. We just think it's just that. It's solvable if we could just get the right pieces in place instead of falling on our faces before God. Like we do evil and then we wonder why everything goes to hell. The proud and the arrogant, they slay the widow, the stranger. They murder the fatherless. It's like even, even I tend to think... Well, we can abort a million babies a year in this country, and it's just part of the, it, I, it's evil. I know it's evil, but it's just this evil age in which we live. It's like, at some point, 
I'm not saying that's what all this is about. I'm certainly not. I'm not trying to play the role of a prophet. But just on a on an abstract principle, it's like it makes sense that eventually the Lord says, "I have given you. I've given you a long time to repent for this." And then add in whatever other sins you want. But that's a pretty big one. That's a pretty big one. Then verses 8 through 11, the, the word of warning to the stupid people. Those who, were fa- who failed to recognize the holy God, who failed to recognize the God of vengeance, who think in their stupidity that the God who made the ear can't hear them, that the God who made the eye can't see them, that the guy who, God who made the mind cannot understand their thoughts and their motives. That's stupid. Understand, you senseless people. You fools, when will you be wise? The God who did these things, you don't think he sees? You don't think he understands? Come up with all your names for what you want to call these things. Come up with all your your branding for these different policies and these acts of evil. Try to convince the people and pull the wool over their eyes. Go ahead and do it. But the God of heaven sees. And the God of heaven knows, you stupid people. He knows the thoughts of men, that they are futile. Then in verse 12, he turns to you and tries to give you some comfort and assurance. Blessed is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law. Blessed is the one who is humbled by the word of God. Blessed is the one who is taught by the word of God. As we said again in in the assurance of pardon or the confession, be careful of judging the Bible and God by your circumstances. Don't let that happen. Be instructed by God and then interpret the circumstances in light of that. Blessed is the one who's humbled. Blessed is the one who is chastened. Blessed is the one who is instructed by the word of God and taught out of your law that you may give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit is dug for the wicked. Like, we're going to have to endure this. We're going to have to endure the wickedness. But we, as we talked about two weeks ago with Jesus in the boat sleeping while the storm is going, like, we actually can do that. We can rest in the midst of this crazy, stormy sea if we've been instructed in the promises of God. Like Jesus knew his God reigned. He knew his purpose and he knew nothing could shake him. He knew the plague could not strike him at night nor the arrow by noonday. He he knew that. And he could rest. And so the psalmist is saying, Yes, the one who is instructed by the word of God, the one who eats the word of God and drinks the word of God will be like a tree planted by streams of living water and it will bear its fruit in seasons. The leaf will not wither or fade. For the Lord will not cast off his people, even the ones sawn in two and the ones who lose their property and their possessions and all of those in in the end of Hebrews 11. He will not forsake his inheritance. We or his inheritance. But judgment will return to righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who will rise up for me against evildoers? Who will stand for me in uh, uh, against these workers of iniquity? And then he, again, assuring us, unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would have settled in silence. I would have died. I would never have made it. I, I wouldn't make it through all this mayhem. 
If I say my foot slips, it's your mercy, O Lord, that will hold me up. In the multitude of my anxieties within me, comforting to know that he has all these anxieties within him, right? Because I have that. I got all these anxieties swirling around in me. Again, I feel like there's no solid ground to stand on. Everything's shifting underneath me. Your comforts delight my soul. Shall the throne of iniquity, which devises evil by law, have fellowship with you? They gather together against the life of the righteous, and they condemn innocent blood. But the Lord has been my defense, and my God, the rock of my refuge. And then the psalmist ends with this great confidence. He has brought on them their own iniquity. He he turns it as like a, a future present. He's so confident in the future that he can say it in the present or almost in the past. He has brought on them their own iniquity, now future. He shall cut off, he shall cut them off in their own wickedness. The Lord our God shall cut them off. He will not let the wicked prevail. We might ask how long? Why do the wicked prosper? Why are the wicked allowed to say this? How long, O Lord, how long? But the psalmist is absolutely confident the Lord will avenge. The Lord will set things right. And when he does it, he will do it not spitefully, not maliciously. He will do it righteously. Ours then is the call to have confidence in that in the midst of the darkness. And for that confidence, I point you back to the cross, both to tremble and to rejoice in. Because what the cross tells us is that our God is, in fact, a God of vengeance. That's what the cross tells you. You know, there's that passage in Romans 8 where it says, it's, it's, it's speaking confidence to us, right? You know, um, if God is for us, who can be against us? If he, who did not spare his own son, how will he not give us all things with him, right? If like, if God loves us enough not to spare his only son, then what's he possibly going to withhold from you? Oh, it's a verse of tremendous comfort. Aha. But it's a two-sided coin. Because we might say on the other side of the coin, if God did not spare his own son in dealing with sin, if God did not spare his own son in dealing with divine justice, then do not think he will spare you. Our God is a God of holy, divine vengeance, righteous judgment. And so while this has fallen out of vogue in our culture, may we never lose sight of it. May it cause our knees to buckle again to think of standing naked before God with every bit of our sin from the very motives to the very actions exposed. And then as our knees buckle, may our knees find strength in the fact that it is Jesus Christ who has borne that for us, lest we ever look away from him. May we put our faith and our confidence in him, and in putting it in him, then stand and wait a little while longer through all the crises, knowing that the day is coming when the sky will be rolled back like a scroll, 
and he will set all things to rights. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are sinners, and so we squirm at the idea of divine vengeance. We bristle at it because we know that we are subject to it. But Father, may that squirming only drive us to the cross where we find our Savior, the Lord our God, bearing all the vengeance that was rightfully owed to us and doing it on our behalf. Father, we pray for the wicked, how we pray indeed for divine holiness to reign and for wickedness to be done away with. So, Father, we pray that you would turn the hearts of people to the Lord Jesus Christ, that the way in which their wickedness would have been dealt with is through our Savior. Oh, Father, we pray that you would stop the evil and the wicked of the Taliban that you would stop the wicked and the evil of ISIS and Al-Qaeda, that you would stop the wickedness and the evil of Planned Parenthood and all these abortion mills. And Father, for every other evil and institution that has institutionalized evil, how we pray for your divine vengeance and judgment. But Father, may it be most clearly manifested in breaking their hearts that they might repent and find forgiveness and new life in and through Jesus Christ. Even as you have done for us, the wicked ones gathered in this room, for indeed, Father, you have broken us. You have instructed us by your law, and you have forgiven us. And for that, we give good, great thanks and great praise. And we do it in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.